Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Fiction, science fiction, horror, fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino. John Copenhaver and our Warren. 106.5 FM Los Angeles. 102.3 FM Riverside. And 1050 AM Palm Springs. You are back in the House of Mystery, and I'm now Warren. Still here, still fighting the big one. And uh, <laughs> down, down in the. Uh, City of Boston. <laughs> David North Martino is there. He's he's on the street asking people questions. Man on the street interview. Yeah. Well, <laughs> hopefully it goes better than the last one. I know, right? Yeah. So so here we go. So um, I'm still fighting the old, uh, I guess, the COVID or whatever that. Oh uh, no, that virus they're talking about. But uh, you know, I'm. I don't know how I would get it, but triple shot it. And sitting in here all by myself, yep. you know, hidden my, away, w- hidden away with my dog. <laughs> oh, now they're talking Who's your about your dog. We can give it to the dog. Oh no! Like, oh, that's that's the only thing I've got Poor left. Dog. That's all I've got left. <laughs> it's the only one that hangs out and talks to me. So, mm. yeah, it's too bad. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, can't win. Well, so. Um, We'll talk more later. We've got um, uh, another fantastic author. What a week, hey? You know, Dean Coons, Paul Bittich, and now we've got Mr. Jeff Strand. So thank you for being here, Jeff. Hey, thanks for having me again. Yeah. So, so what have you been up to since we talked to you last year? You, you, all sorts of new things. Do you, you write all the time, or do you ever stop? I. Pretty much I'm always working on something. It's never like, ah, I've completed all the writing I need to do for a while because there's always the financial need to, you know, keep the productivity going because it's my only source of income. So, and I'm not successful enough to do that thing where I do a book every decade. That would be wonderful. 
all right, I have written my book for the you know 2020s, and now I'll sit around and live a life of leisure and wait for the next idea to come to me. It's always like the end, chapter one. So I'm pretty much always on the hamster wheel, but it's it's better than when I worked a day job for a couple of decades. So. Oh yeah, it's always better when you can break away from that. You know. Um, you know, work in the drive-through. It's it's always, yeah. <laughs> it's always better. I, I wonder now. Um, so under that kind of pressure, um, do, how do you stay fresh? Like, how do you keep it so that you're not just falling into a let's say a, a formula when you write some books? Well, a lot of it is I occasion, you know, if I have earned the right to do it, I'll do sort of an outlier book, which is I'll do kumquat or romantic comedy or bang up a smut comedy or just sort of something that I know may not sell as well, but just to keep things fresh. You know, I did my first nonfiction book, The Writing Life, last year, and I knew that was not, you know, that was a little bit more of a limited appeal type thing. So that one, you know, kept it fresh. It was fun to do nonfiction People really liked it. It sold badly as expected. And then I have to go back and do a horror thriller thing that I know will keep the bills paid. And then within that, you know, horror, you can do a ton of stuff and keep things fresh. You know, I can switch from third person to first person. I can do one that's more supernatural horror and one that's thriller. I can, you know, vary up how much comedy is, is in it. I'm not doing, you know, my 18th installment of a PI series where I'm like, man, how do I keep this going? And I, I sort of bounce around a lot, even within the horror genre. So I try to not repeat myself from book to book. Yeah, yeah. Do you, do you think it's really hard to change um, the genre of style that you're writing? As in fans, like, will they will they not really jump over to you just because you write a comedy? Right. A lot of times they won't. And it's like, you know, look, if you like my stuff, Kumquat, it's, it's got a dark sense of humor. It's, you know, just as good as anything else. But for the most part, horror readers are not going to read a romantic comedy, no matter who wrote it. So, yeah. Yeah. So it's like, it's, it would be like you being uh, in a heavy metal band and all of a sudden you do a, a pop song. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I have generally found that if I veer away from horror suspense, the sales, you know, suffer for it, but I still like to do it. It's like, you know, okay, fine. So Kumquat didn't sell very well, but it's out there. The people who did read it really liked it, and now it's time to pay the bills with Wolf Hunt 3 or whatever. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. you gotta, you got to keep the, the money coming in. Yep. Um, so now on your new book, Deathless, what, what's the premise of this book? Deathless is a sequel to one of my most popular books, Pressure. So it is essentially a pressure takes place over about 20 years and it was originally published in 2007. So I thought, well, now's good time to do a sequel, which takes place. It picks up right where the previous book left off and then covers about the same amount of time. And it is pressure is basically the story of a, kid whose best friend turns out to be a serial killer and sort of follows them from kids to meeting in college to meeting as adults. You know, our hero wins at the end of pressure, but the villain Darren Rusk doesn't die. He goes to prison for life. And so Deathless opens with our hero Alex trying to move past that and obviously not succeeding very well. 
Yeah. Well, you know, and that was like 2012 uh, pressure. So over a 10-year span, how is it you can go back and remember? Or do you have kind of an outline so some of the characters and, and what they've done and kind of who they are? I had to just reread it and refresh my memory and take notes on the little details I've forgotten. So, it, but I generally, when I do sequels, I almost never like crank them out back to back. It's always, we've been waiting 11 years for the next Andrew Mayhem book. And so, but for the most part, because I get so heavily immersed in my characters when I'm writing, it's not usually that hard to pick it back up. I have to, you know, go through and remember plot details, but I can get into Andrew Mayhem's voice really quickly. And with the three Wolf Hunt books, I can get right back into George and Lou really quickly. And this is kind of the same thing with Deathless, which is also first person. You know, once I reread Pressure, it's like, all right, I am back in Alex Fletcher's voice and back into the story. So aside from, you know, refreshing my memory on the little, on, you know, what actually happened as far as the characters, I can jump into that pretty easily. Would you consider turning uh, Pressure and Deathless into a series, or are you just going to keep it uh, these two books? I have considered a third one. It would probably be kind of the same thing um, where, you know, you wait another 15 years and then, hey, here's the third installment in the trilogy. You know, it's first person, so it's not a spoiler to say that our hero doesn't die at the end. You know, it's not like, and I was a ghost the whole time. It, you know, there, you can... <laughs> You know, I I can bring him back. He is still alive at the end of Deathless. But it would be, you know, a long time. I'm certainly not going to jump right into it. Unless, you know, it gets picked up as a TV series and then, like, well, all right, we need more material to keep it going. Then I would, you know, fast track it quite cheerfully. But <laughs> at this point, it's like, yeah, it'll be a long time before I revisit it. But I'm certainly not ruling it out because people like death. So if I would have been, oh, this is a, shameful, inferior cash grab to, see, to pressure, then I would say, okay, it's time to be done. But people have liked Deathless as much as pressure, so at some point there may very well be a third one. So when you, when you say you um, can get right back into the voice of the character, how much of you is in that character? Personality-wise, very little. And that kind of is true for almost all my characters. It's never like, hey, this character is an avatar for me. However, I have, you know, my writing style is pretty distinct. And I've, you know, so I'm not trying to do a completely different writing voice each time I do a first person book, which is what Deathless is. So, um, you know, to some degree, they write like me. But um, personality wise, it's not me at all on the page. Well, how do you how do you find yourself getting into that then? Like when you're writing about that that character, it's not really you; it's someone else personally. So, how do you know what they're going to do? It's like an actor. It's like, okay, what what would this person do in this situation? So, generally, I'm pretty mellow and you know take a really analytical approach to everything, which does not generally make for good drama in a you know, fast-paced horror story. So I kind of have characters who are ruled more by emotion than I am. So from there, it's like, in this situation, I would stop and, you know, analytically work out a solution, whereas Alex is going to freak out and immediately, you know, try to solve it right away. So it's kind of from that perspective. And 
you know, with Wolf Hunt, George and Luther, they're funny guys, but they're ultimately bad guys. You know, they're the heroes of the Wolf Hunt books, but in other, you know, they are the villains in other people's life stories. And so from then it's like, okay, what would I do if I was, you know, a thug for hire? And Andrew Mayhem is, you know, I've done five Andrew Mayhem books. Those are also in first person. And he's generally a guy who will make the wrong decision almost every time. He's not stupid. He just tends to, you know, act without thinking. And, you know, he will, if, if you're supposed to go left, he will probably go right. And so from that perspective, I can write the books and just, okay, what would I do if I were making the wrong decision in this particular problem? But I do, I do have to reread the books. It's not just like, oh, I have the complete, I remember everything that happened in pressure. I can jump right back into it. I have to, you know, revisit the book and then take it from there. Well, do you have an inner monologue when you write? Can, can you hear Andrew and your other characters as you're writing? You know, we just want, we just want to know if you, you hear voices. Yes, I do. Yeah, I've heard that. <laughs> That was weird. It was pretty recently when I heard, you know, some people don't have a inner monologue. Like, what? Yeah. Like, they don't hear anything in their head. Like, wait, that's weird. Mm. I that, agree. It's like, it's like, how do you, I don't know. That, of course, they're probably thinking, wait, you hear voices in your head? How are you not insane? Like, how can you live like that? How do you sleep when there's a voice screaming in your head? So, mm. but yes, I absolutely hear them as I'm writing. They don't tell me what to do. It's not one of those, my characters decide their own fate for me. I'm just the conduit. It's like, no, I, I tell them what to do, but I absolutely hear what I'm writing. Wow. That sounds insane. Yeah. <laughs> it does. I mean, I, I'm, all, I'm all writing two crime nonfiction cults and stuff, so I, I don't hear voices. I, I go talk to the people. Uh, so it's kind of weird. Um, but hey, you know, if it works, you know, you haven't blown up any buildings or anything lately. So, well, that you um, know about, yeah, that we know about. <laughs> so when when you finish this book, um, at the end of it, when someone picks up Deathless and they take it home and read it, um, is there something you hope that they uh, pick up from the book besides the story? It's. Not too much. There's not, it's not a book which is like, here's the message I'm trying to convey. It is about trying to move, you know, beyond your past where it's, you know, he's in this situation where he just can't escape the shadow of, you know, out of Darren Rust, who did so much horrible stuff and essentially destroyed his life in pressure. Deathless is trying to move beyond it and not being able to both for internal and external factors. But as far as a message, there's not really, you know, the message would be try not to have a best friend as a kid who turns out to be a serial killer. You know. <laughs> you, you don't always have a choice. You don't know necessarily, right? Right. That, you know, that's part of the tragedy of pressure and deathless. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a... It's not a message book. There are deep themes in it, but it's not a, here's what I want you to walk away having learned from my yeah. dark comedy horror thriller books. <laughs> you like to mix comedy in with the horror. Um, is that just because it's part of your personality? Is that kind of what you're putting out there? Or is there a um, kind of a, uh, you just like it to be a little bit lighter on the side? 
No, it's pretty much just my natural style. You know, I'm not, you know, Deathless has a lot of humor in it, but I'm not thinking, okay, this scene, scene needs to be hilarious. It just sort of comes out in the dialogue and description. I've heard people say that Deathless, you know, unlike Pressure, which is dark and humorless, Deathless has a funnier tone. Like, I don't agree with that. I think Pressure is also really funny, but I think with Pressure, people weren't expecting the book to be so dark and it kind of overrode all the humor that's in the book. I think Pressure has, you know, humor to the whole thing. And I think with Deathless, they were expecting something really dark, and so the humor stood out, even though I think both books have about the same amount. But no, it's a very natural thing. It's not something where I'm like, unless I'm writing a comedy for kids, my young adult books, it's like, okay, this scene needs to be funny because these books are just, you know, joke, 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 joke. But for the adult horror stuff, something like Deathless, you know, I use it consciously, you know, to relieve tension, to, you know, make you empathize with the characters, but it a very natural, instinctual type thing. It's not, well, this book needs to have humor in it. It's, I write books and they end up with humor in them. Well, you've, you've also, in that same vein, you've emceed uh, the Stoker Awards, where you have to do, uh, you know, kind of like a stand-up. Yep. And that takes uh, comedic timing, and you do it very well. Do you feel that uh, humor in fiction also takes a type of uh, comedic timing? Yeah, and it's tricky because you have you know, you're trying to control the pace, which is really outside of your control. And sometimes I'll listen to audiobooks and it's like, wow, that's not at all the way I, that's not the timing I had intended for it. Hmm. So yeah, it is, it's tricky because, you know, you can't control the pace at which they're reading. You can't control how they're hearing it. You know, they may be speed reading, they may be skimming. You're, it's kind of out of your control. So you just do the best you can. But it's a little bit different because with fiction or you know even when i'm reading it out loud if i'm reading a short story not every joke has to land it's kind of fine you know Mm. you're you're there for the story and you want them to laugh as much as possible but it's not like oh man that joke didn't work i'm screwed whereas (laughs) when you're doing the stand-up comedy especially with the stokers like the monologue is kind of fine if a joke doesn't work in the monologue you just move on to the next joke but a lot of the category introductions are a single joke so I go up, do my joke, and that is it. And if that joke doesn't work, then I'm just walking off stage to awkward silence. And so there's a lot more pressure, you know, for something like I'm seeing where every joke needs to land or I need to have a backup line, like, yeah, which I do that too, where it's like, okay, if this joke doesn't work, here's my, you know, saver. And so... You know, I have there. There are contingency plans, but there's a lot more pressure on a um, joke to work in the stand-up type thing than there is in fiction. Yeah, yeah, and you get an automatic response when you're in a live setting yeah. like that too. It's not yeah. like a book where you don't just get that response. You're not with that person while they're reading, so um, that's a different feeling. Yeah. Um, now, are you using? A, do you like to use a lot of gore? or violence in the book, or do you like to read that type of a book? I, you know, I am a fan of splatterpunk extreme horror, but I'm never like, oh, man, that was so gory. It was so good. I'm just, I'm not someone who pulls back. I use really the amount of gore that's necessary for the story because people were, I got some reviews that were surprised by how little gore is in my book, Autumn Bleeds into Winter, and it's like, that wasn't a conscious 
ever, that was a story that did not require gore. You know. And um, Allison, you know, that's a pretty gory book because it needed to be the story required. I don't get into the really elaborate descriptions, but I don't get into the elaborate descriptions of anything. So I'm not someone who does, you know, two pages describing how his character looks. So therefore I'm not going to do two pages describing when someone's arm gets pulled off, you know, so I'm not hugely um, descriptive in my writing and the amount of violence kind of depends on the story. So if it's, you know, I tend to choose stories that do require quite a bit of violence and gore, but it, you know, it varies by book. So the odds is not really that violent of a book because it didn't need to be. Whereas the Haunted Forest Tour is a gore fest from beginning to end because that's, you know, it is a carnage packed monster extravaganza. So I tend, you know, I'm certainly not the, I hate gore and I develop suspense by the dew draw, you know, dropping from a leaf on a eerie fog filled afternoon. I'm not, that's not me, but I'm not, you know, into the really graphic blow by blow descriptions in my own right. That doesn't mean I don't enjoy a good Edward Lee book or something like that. Well, were you influenced by the early splatter punks, uh, the splatter, punk, splatter punks of the 1980s? I don't know that I was influenced them as much as I just sort of like to read them. I get, it depends if you consider Richard Lehman a splatterpunk, hmm. because I was definitely influenced by him just because I thought I was doing something wrong when I was writing before. I didn't have a whole lot of description. And then I read his stuff, and he also does not do a whole lot of character description. He's kind of just That's like, true. here's what happened. So I read early Richard Lehman. Wow, this guy is... I'm not doing it wrong. This guy, that's what this guy is doing. So from that standpoint, you know, I was influenced, but not from the standpoint of, you know, the amount of violence and stuff. But I certainly, you know, I enjoyed Skip Inspector and all mm. the people of that era. But I also enjoyed, you know, Dean Koontz and Charles Grant and, you know, the quiet side and the right. side. I tend to, you know, if you said, if you asked me, do you, like, do you get to choose one? Do you want the <laughs> do you want the harder stuff or the more atmospheric stuff? I would pick the harder stuff, but I that was never like oh I only read Splatterpunk or I only read Quiet Horror. I sort of liked on all ends of the spectrum. You know um, what feeds your own writing, your own imagination? Is it is it other other um, writers or is it like um, horror movies or is it something different like watching ballet? Like what what feeds that? A lot of times it's, and not so much from direct inspiration, but, you know, if you re watch a really good movie, then I'm kind of inspired to, you know, step up my game. If I read a really good book and I'm, you know, all right, time to, time to get creating. But, you know, again, because I'm a full-time writer who needs to be prolific to keep that up, a lot of it is just sit down and brainstorm. It is the butt in chair type thing. I have, you know, it's like, okay, if I want to not come crawling back to a corporate desk job, I need to finish this book. And so to finish this book, I need to sit in front of the computer and type the words that finish the book. So the inspiration just comes from saying, hey, this is my day job. This is how I make a living. So I need to sit down and do it. So you actually schedule yourself like kind of, let's say, nine to five, five days a week or um, and, and just sit there and do it? I'm not that regimented, but it is like I need to write, you know, every day. And so it's not, I will get up and I will 
start work at nine and I will punch out at five. It's just, I need to be working a lot. So, you know, as you watch the bank account dwindle, it's like, all right, it is time for a new book. And <laughs> if I'm not feeling particularly motivated, that doesn't matter because, you know, the bills are still going to come due. You don't get to write, you know, a note on your phone bill saying, hey, the muse wasn't here this month. So sorry. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think that in a way that would be kind of hard in a sense, I guess, because you're not always in the mood. Do you have to be in a mood in order to, to actually write? Or do you just sit there and then all of a sudden it'll come to you? Or What do you do if you're not, not feeling it? If Fortunately, that's pretty rare. So if I'm really just like, I'm not, this isn't working today, I have the luxury of saying, okay, I'm just going to do something else. But to counteract that, I, you know, will sometimes just work on multiple projects that are very different from each other at the same time. So if I'm writing a really dark thriller and I'm also writing a goofy comedy for kids, if it's like, you know what, I'm struggling with these jokes today, well, then I'll just go write a really intense, disturbing scene. Or if I'm not in the mood for that, then, okay, then I'm writing as many jokes as I can squeeze into a single book. So that's one way to help. Usually if it's really... Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm really not feeling it. I, if I go for a walk and listen to music, then I'm, I can snap back into it. But yeah, pretty much, you know, the fact that it is my day job, I don't have a choice but to do this. You know, that's a pretty strong source of inspiration do you feel it affects you personally when you write it uh, do you need to find a way to relax and recharge uh, between books and chapters is is that uh, something that is necessary for you no i'm using that same thing you know if i watch a horror movie i'm not like oh man i'm so disturbed i can't do anything so yeah i don't have that where you know i wrote this scene that was so disturbing that i just couldn't function for the rest of the night because i'm still focusing on the analytical portion a lot i don't tend to do the thing where you know my fingers were typing the words and i wasn't even really aware of what was happening i'm like okay is this the correct word okay if i break it into a paragraph am i better emphasizing that particular shock and you know so i'm always focused on the technical aspects of how to deliver the you know horror elements the most um effectively and so that that kind of takes away from the personal impact on me. So I'm not, I don't have those things where I go into the fugue states and I'm just typing and it's taking over. I'm always focused on the technical aspects of making as good as possible. So it doesn't, my own work doesn't really disturb me. My own work also doesn't make me laugh. So I'm not like, oh my God, I'm a comic (laughs) genius. I am like, okay, how can I fine tune this joke to make it funnier? Okay, what if I, shortened it what if i did this and so i'm not at my computer laughing hysterically at the hilarious material i came up with i'm too focused on the technical aspects to laugh at it Hmm. um the title deathless um where did that come from just came from the idea that he can't escape his past so it's sort of like and the word itself doesn't appear in the book i Wanted to explain it, and I, I didn't want the dun, 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 that's why it's called Deathless. <laughs> but the theme is that, you know, despite the fact that he won in the first book and Alex Rust is behind bars, presumably for the rest of his life, he's sort of deathless. He just cannot get past him. Mm. So in, in today's times, um, do you find that you, you write differently or you are more careful with your dialogue because of a, an amount of political correctness or are you worried about emphasizing the wrong thing? I'm not, it's not generally something I worry too much about, you know, because it's not something I would have done before. You know, if, if there's going to be a racist comment, it's clear that the characters are racist. It's not like, Hey, it's me, Jeff Strand, doing a hilarious racist joke. <laughs> it's, you know, if, if a character is politically incorrect, then the character will say politically incorrect stuff. And, you know, my book, Facial, some of the, it has multiple first-person narrators, one of whom is just a, you know, incredible misogynist. But that's not me. That is a really unlikable character. You know, and so because, you know, I'm writing books, about, you know, characters, I haven't had to, you know, I haven't had any kind of criticism saying, hey, this book is sexist, this book is homophobic or whatever. That 
isn't really something where I'm like, oh, I need to stop being so homophobic because of the current. Um, I haven't really, you know, had that issue. So, as far as you know, political correctness, you know, my they're dark, dark humor. They're often in very bad taste, but I haven't had to reel anything back because I haven't done anything that would get me canceled by you. Know, Well, get on that. What are you doing? Yeah. (laughs) You get more followers. How long does it take you to to do one of this? Like, how long did Deathless take you to put together? Deathless took longer than usual. And I'm usually pretty quick. I think Deathless probably took about eight or nine months. I was working on other stuff at the same time because, you know, it would be nice to be able to, you know, perfect a book over two years, but I have to generally get them out a little bit faster than that. But Deathless, just because, you know, it was following, it's the sequel to one of my most popular books. So you don't want to screw it up. So there was a lot of, you know, it, it was written at a slower pace than my usual stuff. Not that my other stuff is just, you know, cranked out as fast as I can because I don't care. But there was more attention just to making sure that it lived up to the first book. Because if I write an original book, I only have to live up to, you know, I wanted to, you know, bring my A game every single time, but it's not, well, this needs to be better than a specific book. And pressure is a really dark, intense thrill. So it's like, okay, how do I match the intensity of pressure in a different story? So, you know, I sort of competing with myself with that book, but, um, so it took a little bit longer, but, Still, I think it was like eight or nine months. I don't know if that is super fast or super slow. For me, it was kind of slow. Hmm. So if, if someone's never heard of you before, hard to believe. But And um, they were to pick one book. What book besides the new one would you suggest that they get to um, really get the feel of your writing? If it's someone, If I had no contact with this person, I would probably – start with Autumn Bleeds into Winter, which I think is one of my more mainstream books. Usually it's like, okay, what do you like? And if I have a big idea of what they like, you know, my answer will change. I'll say, well, start with Blister or start with Cyclops Road or start with Wolf Hunt. But um, without, you know, answering it just in real general terms, I would go with Autumn Bleeds into Winter, which I think is one of those that, you know, it's a good representation of my style, but it's a little more mainstream than some of my other stuff, less violent, just because the story didn't need it. More of a mm. suspense type thing. Did you, ever, did you ever look back at some of your older books and decide that you'd like to change them? Oh, there's no way I could ever look at an old book and not want to change them. The most painful part of the process for me is um, reviewing galleys, where the book is done, the publisher sends you, like, here's your final proofread, and all you can change are mistakes. You can't say, you know, this line would be funnier this way. You can't change anything unless it's an actual error. And that is miserable for me, because that's when I see all kinds of stuff I want to change. But, no, there is no book ever that I will say, nailed it. That is exactly <laughs> the way the book should be. I really don't revisit my old stuff unless there's a sequel. So like I hadn't reread Pressure in you know, since it was published and then came time for Deathless and then I had to read Pressure and it's like, you know, hey, I still like the book, but yeah, I would write a lot of stuff differently. And whether I read it, you know, ten minutes after it's done or ten years 
there will always, I'm never going to be satisfied. I will always wince and say, oh, I should have done that differently. And that's just, yeah, I'm absolutely not someone who says that book is perfect. I wouldn't change a word. There are always lots and lots of words I would change. Well, I'm curious, you know, you're pretty active in the horror community, and, you know, I, I found uh, the horror community back in the days of uh, Shocklines, the old Shocklines message board. Um, I, just, I was just curious how you uh, found your way into the horror community itself. Well, I, was, I love Shocklines. Shocklines is sort of how I yeah. got back into it, because I okay. wasn't that big a part of it for a while. But um, I started just because I was a horror fan, and this was pre-internet, so I was, you know, I would... This was back when you could go to like a grocery store and they would have a horror section up there. So I was, you know, it'd be, let's go to the grocery store. Hey, there's a new horror book I've never heard of. That looks good. So I'll read that. That was the time, you know, before my, you know, to be red pile was more than I could read, you know, for the rest of my life. I now have more books, (laughs) unread books than I could read if I did nothing but read for you know, the next 50 years. But back then, it was like, oh, I'm out of, I just read my book. Now I'm going to go pick up another book to read. And so I was sort of doing them one at a time. And then I um, got Writer's Digest back, or Writer's Market, which was the book version of Writer's Digest. And it's like, hey, there's the Horror Writers Association. I'll check that out. And so I, um, you know, you get the newsletter and that would be sort of my, connection point to the rest of the horror industry and then the internet happened in a real basic version there was genie which was just all text but they had a uh, it was a bulletin board system so you'd do a post and then someone could do a comment after it or so just real real but they had a horror writers association private area so then suddenly it's like oh my god rick hodler is there and rick hodler will answer Mm. you know so it was like, there's, you know, these authors who I have read will now interact with me. And there was a chat room function. So that's how I really got into it. And then um, once I, I got involved with ebooks in the real early, early stages. So, and that was when everyone hated them. So for a few years, this, once I started getting published, I was much more in the ebook community than the horror community. And then once I started getting books, because it was like it was no good to go to a horror convention if you had an ebook at that time, because like, oh, that's not a real book. You suck. <laughs> so, because people hated ebooks when they first came out. And then Kindle sort of yep. changed everything. So, around 2005, it was like, okay, now I have print books out. I can start going to the horror stuff. And so, Shocklines was how I sort of got back into making those connections. And then I was, you know, I have been part of it pretty much 2005 was my re-entry i went to the world horror convention in 2005 and then became a big time member of the horror community not big time in terms of <laughs> stature in terms of active participation yeah yeah me after that so well, um so what's next after this what do you got planned coming up i've right now a lot of the stuff is like the top secret a lot of it's screenplay type stuff, which is infuriating because, you know, I'll go online and see, wow, Jeff hasn't, at the, before Deathless came out, he was like, wow, Jeff's a slacker. He hasn't had a new book since <laughs> the writing last night. Yes, but I'm working. I promise you I'm working. I'm just not allowed to say anything about it. And so there's been this thing where 
secret projects have piled up enough. So I look like I'm just, you know, living a life of leisure, but I'm not. I'm always working. But um, next up in a book that keeps getting sidelined because of the top secret stuff is a book called Creep Out, which is my entry into the possessed ventriloquist dummy genre. So, <laughs> so that should, I keep, you know, people, when's Creep Out coming out? Creep Out's coming really soon. And then it never does. So my answer remains very soon, but at some point it will be out. So that's, that's going to be the next novel. Mm. Do you, do you, do you like the um, new atmosphere of, of Amazon and, and the way the publishing world's kind of gone in the last few years? I love it because that's what let me quit my day job because I was at leisure. So I had, you know, mass market paperbacks and, um, you know, if you went into a Barnes Noble, there I am on the shelf. I'm a real author making no money. I'm, you know, it's like, <laughs> you, know, you know, writing for leisure, you know, it had the prestige of the horror community, but there was no possibility that I would ever do this full time because they're just, the money was so, so low. And so then once I started self-publishing, it was like, wow, I'm keeping 70% of the royalties and and I realized that, you know, there's, this has a path to quitting my day job. And then by being prolific, it, I finally did. And so I love it. You know, Amazon's the evil empire. I don't agree with that because Amazon created a, you know, model for mm. authors where, you know, I'm fortunate in that my wife, Lynn Hansen, does my covers at a real strong, high professional level. So I don't have the expenses that come from self-publishing stuff. So I can put out a product that, you know, looks like a major New York published product. And then, you know, I'm very good at self-editing. And then I've got my group of my band of trusty proofreaders. So I'm putting out stuff that, you know, it's not like, oh, that's amateur self-published crap. They, they hopefully are, you know, the equivalent of big traditional published products. And then, that let me quit my day job. So I, you know, I love it. I'm, and of course I started out with eBooks when people hated them. Kindle sort of changed it. Now, you know, people enjoy eBooks and that's where a lot of my income comes from. So, cause it, what it does is it lets books be available, you know, completely, completely available for as long as you keep them in print or keep them available. So, you know, when I was with leisure, it was great when the book would first come out, you'd go into any bookstore and like, Hey, there are 10 copies of pressure on the shelf. And then at the end of six to eight weeks, it's like, okay, there are a couple and they're spine out. And then, you know, within six months, they weren't really on bookstore shelves anymore. Whereas, you know, my first book, Grave Robbers One, No Experience Necessary, came out in 2000, but because I got the rights back, you know, anyone who wants it can get it anytime they want. You know, every one of my, except for a couple of the early comedies that I purposely said, you know, I don't want someone reading those and thinking that's my newest book. So I, my first two books, I've sort of, you know, withdrawn, but everything else, you know, any book I wrote at any stage of my career, you can go onto Amazon and get like, it's a brand new book. So that the fact that I have my entire back catalog generating royalties every month keeps me from having to sit at a desk and work with numbers all day. So I, mm. I love it. Yeah. So 
do you how do you like to interact with your fans for uh, your website um, social media what's what's your preference I have a website um, I'm a big fan of Facebook and Twitter and I kind of I'm not one of those authors like I have to be on every platform because that's where I'll find readers because I you know I barely have time for Facebook and Twitter so I try to keep real close tabs on those. So I'm very active on Facebook, very active on Twitter, but I'm not on TikTok or um, a lot of the other ones. And then um, I do a newsletter every two weeks, which has all my latest news. Every issue of it has a brand new flash fiction story. So it's not, you know, if you subscribe to my newsletter, which the link is on my website, you're not just getting me saying, hey, buy my book, buy my book, buy my book. It's like, hey, here's a brand new free story issue. So really the newsletter, social media, and then I keep my website updated, but I don't update the blog as much as I should because I tend to focus more on the newsletter and social media. Hmm. What's the website? Website is www.jeffstrand.com. Okay, we'll have that up on our website as well so people can find you and uh, hopefully interact with you, you know. Excellent. Um, anyone you want to work with before it's too late? <laughs> not, I'm not actually a great collaborator. I have collaborated. I'm proud of, you know, Han Forest Tour I did with Jim Moore, which is, you know, people love that book. You know, if you like monsters, you know, there are people like, I read that book every year. That is a great book. I did Dracula's, which is also an insane monster extravaganza. But I tend to be kind of power hungry. It's like I don't like to lose battles. And you have, you have to say, okay, I'm going to let my co-author win this particular dispute. So, you know, there are authors who I really, really like and admire. You know, I love Robert McCammon. I love David Wong. I love Joe Lanza. I don't know that I necessarily... Know, aspire to collaborate with Robert McCammon. I just want to read Robert McCammon books. You know, as much as I love Dave Barry, you know, I would collaborate with Dave Barry just because then I would have the you know ego boost of oh, I collaborate with Dave Barry, and now I get to cash in on all of his sales instead of my level of sales. But I don't know that I would bring anything to a Dave Barry collaboration. So it kind of the authors I admire aren't. I would rather just read their books. I don't necessarily aspire to collaborate with anybody. You know, I'm wondering, um, you, you know, horror was like really big, huge in the 80s and 90s before there was a, a genre implosion. Um, with, with modern horror today, do you think we're in a resurgence? Do you think horror is making a, a huge comeback? Yeah, it seems to be. There's, um, there's a, you know, obviously because of, self-publishing because it's because of the distribution now small press can you know have worldwide distribution fairly easily which is significantly different from the way it was in the 80s and 90s where small press was a really really niche market and it was all mass markets so yeah there's you know there's a lot of stuff out there there's a lot of good stuff out there people want to read it you know so horror movies are doing incredibly well mm. horror tv shows are doing fairly well and i think it is also transferring to horror fiction and a lot of the major publishers are trying to get back into it so yeah it is i don't know that it will ever hit the you know i i would guess that the 80s are gone you know the time when you could walk into your grocery store not just have a horror section but 
as you're at the checkout counter, like, hey, here's an impulse purchase. Buy this book with a hologram skull on the cover. Those, <laughs> those days are gone. But I think that the publishers see, you know, there is a market and the readers want that. So, yeah, I think a lot of the major publishers are bringing horror lines back and it is a thriving market. Hmm. So how's COVID been for you? It, it, does it affect your your writing as well? Or do you sort of, I guess it doesn't, you just sort of do it yeah, as it, a job. Yeah, it doesn't affect my writing because I, you know, when it first started happening, you're like, oh, how do you work COVID into your books? I'm like, you don't because you don't know where it's going to be. You know, I, if I write a book, I don't want it in a year to be weird unless it's real specifically, you know, if, if a book is set in March, 2020, you have to address it. But if I'm just writing a book set in quote unquote, the present, I'm not going to, you know, work because we don't know where it's going to end up. As far as my day to day life, it, you know, it certainly screwed up my social life. You know, I used to get out of the house a lot more. You know, my horror author, Brian Kirk, before I moved to Chattanooga, was a neighbor. And so we would have our standing, you know, get together for lunch. And those got canceled for about a year and a half. And it, you know, a lot of it is, okay, yes, I spend most of my life at home huddled behind a computer, but at least I get to go out and be social. I get to go to the world. You know, I get to go to the um, StokerCon and Scares the Care and Nikon and KiloCon, and then those, for the most part, got wiped out. So I'm hoping that 2022 will bring them back because 2020, everything was canceled. 2021, we at least got Scares the Care in a masked version. And I'm hoping that 2022 will finally start to get to go back to those but yeah the whole social aspect of getting to hang out with other horror authors where you come back recharged ready to go that covid definitely took that away i've been fortunate i haven't caught it because we're pretty deep quarantining so but although now you, know, you can do that it's like well i also opened my door once and caught it but <laughs> well, yeah. Well, you know those masking events. You could always it's a good cover up when you're out there killing people, right? So yeah, yeah. it was actually yeah. weird because I had been depositing all my checks through just my phone. So this, I switched to a new bank in China. So this was the first time I had to go into a bank since COVID started. Like this is weird walking to a bank with a mask. This is like yeah. this feels. Very, very wrong. It feels like security should just immediately swoop in and take me away. Yeah. Well, it depends on how big the mask is and yeah. if you're carrying a weapon, I guess. <laughs> no, it's a regular blue mask, but still, it's like covering three-quarters of my face feels strange going into yeah. the yeah. bank. Yeah. You have to get used to it, I know. Yeah. Strange. Well, it's been a great conversation, and we appreciate you coming on. Oh, um, thank you. Now, the book that... Uh, must be bought. It's called Deathless. Don't miss this book. And uh, our guest is the author, Jeff Strand. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. Tired of wasting time trying to decide what to watch on your streaming service? Go to our website and look for the Martino Movie Reviews. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. 
has been completed. The end! By George, he's got it! It is the end! I'll see you. If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This has been a production of Something Wave Media. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. 